Welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking today with Greta Uling. Greta is a lecturer in international and comparative studies at the International Institute at the University of Michigan. Greta focuses in her work on international migration and forced displacement, including as a result of violent conflict. Greta's recent work focuses on the subjective experience of military conflict and forced displacement in Ukraine, in particular since Russia's first territorial incursions into Ukraine in 2014. Based on extensive ethnographic fieldwork, Greta has documented how military conflict in Ukraine has reconfigured social worlds and how these social worlds have become the site of a different everyday kind of war. This research has been documented and presented in a forthcoming book, Everyday War, the Conflict Over Donbass, Ukraine. And this book follows those stories of everyday civilians in Ukraine whose lives have been invariably disrupted by the war that's been ongoing in Ukraine since 2014. So I really look forward to having a discussion about some of the ideas in that book today, as well as how they apply in light of Russia's more recent full-scale invasion of Ukraine. So thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Greta. It's a pleasure to be here. As I indicated in the introduction, this book takes a bit of a different approach to the study of war. You know, we're not just looking at the military aspects, at the combatants themselves, but we're looking at the way in which war impacts everyday civilians' lives. So what motivated you to do this research and to write this book? Yeah, great question. I was motivated to write this book when I realized that many of my ideas about war and conflict were not entirely accurate. So based on over 150 um, interviews, as well as the ethnographic research that you mentioned, I became very convinced that our conventional understandings of war are incomplete. One misconception straight off the bat is that war unfolds something like an action film, right? Because in my experience, military conflict progresses much more slowly much more deliberately and even predictably than I had previously believed. And of course, this has profound consequences for how it's lived on the part of civilians, especially. For example, a man who repaired internet infrastructure spent his nights in his bathtub. It was the safest place in his apartment. And each morning he would get up, go out and repair the damage to the infrastructure again that had been done during the night. Another example, you know, many residents of the eastern provinces knew the exact amount of time it would take the Russian-backed forces to reload. And they would use that time to cross the street and buy a loaf of bread or a carton of milk or perhaps make an important phone call. Of course, there are areas of very intense fighting where people could only take cover. But, you know, my friend Kirillo perhaps described it best in terms that are as predictable as a stoplight. He asked me if I wanted to go to the green, the yellow, or the red zone. And to him, the geography of risk was as stark and clear as a stoplight. You could plan your day around it. So that's what struck me the most. 
Yeah, that's interesting, finding sort of the predictable and almost even the mundane amongst what we tend to think of as quite a chaotic, unpredictable situation. You have really been doing these interviews very extensively in Ukraine since 2014. So What really struck you about the way in which just regular civilians reacted to those territorial incursions of Russia into Ukraine in 2014 and the beginning of the war? Yeah, well, one aspect of the war that really struck me was the extent to which civilians were involved. This had profound implications for lives, for their lives, and also the outcome of the war. I could tell you a little bit about Alexandra for example. She and her family had been forcibly displaced uh, across the country by the war, and her father decided to go back to fight the Russian-backed forces as a member of a volunteer battalion. But he had to come up with the essentials for his position as a sniper on his own. So Alexandra, after he left, went around and collected donations to purchase his equipment, starting with with footwear, appropriate boots. Then she did the same thing to secure him a bulletproof vest, camouflage clothing, and special night vision goggles, ending up with, uh, when I met her, gloves, tactical gloves, so that the gun would not slip in his hand. So instead of organizing her life around university and friends, her everyday life was organized around enabling her father to kill their former neighbors. And I really think that um, Alexandra's story shows us how an interpersonal connection led her to normalize the killing her father was doing as a sniper. And so that's what I, what I mean when I say everyday war, right? Kinship had be, become something that was not just kinship. It was also tactical. And I think that this, you know, it really speaks to the way that it's a misconception to draw too clear a line between civilians and combatants. Another aspect of the war that was profoundly striking was that these places that were filled with absolutely horrific violence were also places where ethics thrived. Military conflict led people to sort of express levels of responsibility and care for one another that they themselves characterized as unprecedented. Perhaps the best example of this would be uh, volunteer body collectors. I know one in particular came out of retirement to lead these small teams into non-government controlled territory to retrieve the remains of soldiers that the Ukrainian army had had to leave behind. And to set the stage for this, I guess it's important to understand that for the first four years of the military conflict, the Ukrainian military did not have the capacity to bring its soldiers, retrieve fallen soldiers. So these volunteers drove on mined roads. They negotiated face-to-face with armed separatists. They cataloged remains that were partially decomposed, eaten by maggots, or disemboweled by feral dogs. And they undertook this gruesome task with shovels and tools that they had brought from home. I wanted to know why, why? And so when I began to talk to several of them, they wanted to bring the families of the deceased peace of mind. 
it wasn't within their capacity to bring peace itself, but that was the part that they could contribute to. They thought about it as the least that they could do, even though they risked their lives, they risked their limbs, and they went on these arduous 10-day journeys to do this important work. I guess another example of this, these like what I'm calling care ethics would be supplied by Pasha. His home was destroyed in this mortar attack and having fled to a small town far away, he and his wife began trying to repair and reconstruct this shack. And Pasha observed that the neighbors started to show up and ask what they needed. Even though Pasha was from the far eastern part of the country, he had found himself in the far western part of the country. And Pasha's reflection to me was, you know that feeling that you could be left without anything in life? It's gone. And so like, because of receiving this care that he did not expect, his experience of dispossession was paradoxically, uh, it paradoxically relieved rather than aggravated his fears of finding himself without support. Mm -hmm. I also find it interesting because as someone who is also an academic in the field of international relations, we do often tend to think about war in terms of these much kind of broader brushstrokes of military conflict between either state military forces or maybe state military versus non-state actor militant groups. So could you talk a bit more about why that kind of common understanding that we have that war is really primarily about an inter interaction between military combatants provides an incomplete picture of the context of violent conflict? Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. I agree with you that our focus is primarily on the interstate level. And, you know, the argument that I'm trying to make in this book is that interpersonal relationships also matter both for the outcome of the relationship and also for the outcome of the war you know i think that one of the things that we've seen with the war in ukraine is the politicization of friendships and families right in a country early on that was d divided and what is so fascinating is that people had to develop new strategies for having a friendship for having a family. And oftentimes the international conflict was replicated at a sort of interpersonal level, right? Between romantic partners, for example, when one person might have to decide whether they cook for the internally displaced at the shelter or their husband. That led to conflicts. And oftentimes, you know, some relationships survived, some relationships didn't survive. And I think that there's a lot of different ways to, to think about this. I like to think about it as being of consequence, both for the way people live their lives and for the outcome of the war. So with Alexandra's story, we can see that her assistance to her father, who she loved, made the difference between him actually having an impact in the conflict or perhaps disabling himself or a soldier that was fighting alongside him. So yeah, these dynamics are very much of consequence. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I do find it very interesting how you bring in that interpersonal dimension as a really important part, not only of what happens, but also of the outcome. Any Ukrainian that I talk to certainly says, you know, this war didn't start in 2022. It started in 2014, if not before, but with those first clear territorial incursions from Russia into Ukraine in 2014. But for many people around the world, really that attention to the war has only become clear since Russia's full-scale invasion in February this year. And many people, I think, were sort of surprised in some ways by the way in which you know, quote unquote, regular Ukrainian citizens rallied around and really either volunteered to fight or were doing whatever they could in order to create things that might help to support the armed forces or help support internally displaced people or, you know, whatever it might be. I'm wondering for you as someone who has been following what's been happening very closely since 2014, did that reaction to Russia's full-scale invasion, did that kind of all make sense to you in terms of what you already know about the context of what's been happening in Ukraine? Mm -hmm. I was not surprised. Uh, Ukrainians' robust response to Russian aggression is really consistent with and in many ways amplifies my book's core insights. You know, the everyday war that's described in the book has really only intensified now it's even more clear that the way non-combatant civilians actively participate is of consequence. So you're probably aware that, you know, Molotov cocktails were made at home and, and renamed Banderite smoothies. Uh, roadblocks, you know, called hedgehogs were assembled by civilians to block Russian forces. People went out onto the streets and destroyed their own road signs to disorient Russian forces. I think that perhaps what is still not receiving enough attention is perhaps how families and friendships are being affected by the conflict. You know, in a way, what I described as tactical kinship back in 2015 turned into state policy in 2022 with the mandate that males between the ages of 18 and 60 stay to defend their country rather than take refuge outside of it. This is more than a human interest story. Uh, I think that's the way that people like to frame what happens within friendships and families. But if you think about it as also, you know, where the people go is also where the resources go, where the armaments go, where the money flows. This is a high stakes conflict and the choices that non-combatant Ukrainians make will have an impact on how the conflict unfolds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess... I'm always keeping in mind as well that at the same time as the conflict might be bringing people together and there is that sort of almost counterintuitive feeling of closeness amongst a sort of fracturing situation, it's still very severe human costs that are being felt day by day. And in fact, I mean, I think that when I was doing the research for my book, I started to notice the sort of proto-othering of Ukrainians towards Russians. They began to see Russians not as like themselves, but as very, very different. And that too has accelerated, right? I, I, I hear my colleagues saying that, you know, they are experiencing a kind of hatred that they did not know was possible. Yeah. And sort of, I guess, stems from that real brutal reality. Absolutely. 
So I want to ask you a bit of a difficult question, but I am interested in your perspective. What do you see as possible trajectories from here going into 2023? That's a great question. And probably the only thing that can be predicted is that it's not going to be predicted, that it's not predictable. And I anticipate the trajectory will be very non-linear, if you will, like surprising. I imagine some things will happen quite suddenly. Other things will happen quite slowly. Yeah. And we have seen when there've been Ukrainian counteroffenses, it's come as a surprise to most people. You know, they've really managed to sort of keep that quiet up to the last minute. Or the recent attacks from Russia on Ukrainian infrastructure wasn't, you know, necessarily predicted. So I agree with you. Like there is, there's going to be a lot that we can't predict that's going to unfold in coming months. Mm-hmm. And although I can't, I can't foretell the outcome of the military conflict, I think what I can say with confidence is that Ukraine will be overcoming the damage for the foreseeable future. My friend Oleg pointed out to me that children growing up in Ukraine learn the names and the calibers of weaponry before the sounds that barnyard animals make. They learn when to head for an air raid shelter before they learn to read. And these traumas are are complex and layered and will will shape lives for, for decades to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the legacies of the conflict will be sort of still be worked out for many generations to come. So finally, how can listeners find out more about your book, which is forthcoming next year? I can be found on Instagram at just my name with a period between my first name and last. So Greta.UEHLING. I'm also on Twitter under Greta Euling at Umish edu1. Um, and then I think it will become uh, ready for pre-order if it isn't already, you know, just by going to the Cornell University Press website and typing in my last name, which is U-E-H-L-I-N-G. It should pop straight up and you can pre-order if you're interested in that. Thanks so much. And I'll link to all of those in the show notes. Well, thanks for being on the podcast today and for the research that you do. It provides such an important perspective on, you know, the ways that we think about war, which can often be less humanized and really sort of investigating the stories of those, you know, everyday humans who are kind of caught up in that context. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Gonka Varol for our theme music.